Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Avedisian, the Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Ani Avedisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and optimism. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini. And by the way, darlings, it's our 100th martini. Well, it's not our 100th martini. We would be snookered and sozzled. But it is our 100th martini podcast. Oh, my God, my darlings, can you believe it? I am delighted to have you along to help me sort out the true from the woo, from the stuff that gets flushed down the loo. In today's It's Disclosure, Massive Exposure, Don't Lose Your Composure. The truth has found a chauffeur that will drive us all over town, and the bad guys will wear a frown. So put on your glad rags and don't you dare dress down. We're going to arrest and execute the clowns. They think they are gods, but we're going to knock them down. It's been disconcerting and somewhat diverting, but I think we all agree it's time we did some hurting to restore our republic and our crazy, hazy little world. Yes, my darlings, not even the darkest black magic can stop what's coming. Huzzah! The cabal, you've got to give them some respect. They did a fabulous job, you know, um, ruining the world. But they've had a good run. And it is time to dethrone the Club of Rome and send those nasty little insects back to their ancestral home. Back you go, you nasty little shitbags, to the fiery pit of hell back to being mere bagatelles and i doubt that your lord and master is going to treat you well because you failed you are losing the franchise of planet earth oh happy day oh happy happy day when the truth walked and the dark ones walked away from us it is just oh darlings i am all a tingle now i know we're actually in the middle of it all still and we have a long way to go but you have to admit things have taken a turn in the right direction so if you're joining us for the first time well you've probably figured out we're not politically correct because we do not wish to erode our intellect we martini heads we are spirit-centered fun-loving patriots we value common sense we value common decency and we value common courtesy we believe America has a major part to play in mankind's ascension, and we take our duties as citizens seriously, and we fly the flag without fear or apprehension. What else do we like to do? Well, I'll tell you, my darlings, we also enjoy a little drinky poo from time to time. It has been said 
that this show is where the Holy Spirit meets top shelf distilled spirits. And it is our pleasure to bring you a never ending rotation of cosmic themed cocktails. In fact, let me have a taste of today's libation du jour and see if it's worthy of our 100th episode. Hold on, hold on, don't go away. Hold on. Mm. 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 Will it be a winner? Will it be a sinner? I'm telling you, this one is a winner. That is a lovely drop of booze. I'm going to keep that one. All right, darlings, since it is such a special occasion today, our centennial, I thought we might do something a little different, but I couldn't think of anything to do that was different. So I thought maybe we'll do this. Instead of focusing mainly on questions, answers and comments, which is always the meat of our show, you know, and then we rotate through various subjects. I thought we might devote a few minutes to each of the segments we started out with back in 2019, um, some of which we buried along the way. Shall we do that? What do you think? <laughs> Let's do it. But before we do. Let me take a moment to thank the people who make intergalactic distribution of this show possible. And who are those people, Annie? I will tell you. They're mystical wares in Mount Vernon, Washington. Folks, when it comes to matters metaphysical, is your expression quizzical? When discussing crystals and scalar devices, do you retreat and have a personal crisis? Fear not and be patient. Mystical wares shares wisdom that's ancient. Don't waste your money on flamboyant deceivers. One trip to Mount Vernon and you will all be believers. Mystical wares in Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon? No, it's in Mount Vernon. Oh, this is a very strong drink. Mystical wares in Mount Vernon, Washington. Mysticalwares.com. Online or on location, you'll be sure to give them a standing ovation and jolly nice people they are too. Knowledgeable, courteous, and very good at packing for shipment. All right, let's get on with the show. And what shall we start with? Let's start with an old friend. Tarot, a go, go. <laughs> a little shenaniganer with the major arcana. A little what the heck with your favorite tarot deck. I know some of you were upset with me when I dropped this from the podcast, but I had more letters from people who didn't like it than from those who did. So, you know, what can I say? It is uncharacteristic of me to listen to anybody, but I did this time around. So today I am going to do a three card pick for America. So hold on while I shuffle my cards. Everybody breathe with me, concentrate with me as I as I shuffle the cards. All right. Shuffling, shuffling, shuffling. And, uh, you know, while I shuffle, let me just tell you, I I don't do tarot for divination because we change our future one thought and one action at a time, don't we? I think of tarot reading as a snapshot of potential to think of it, you know, as more than that. Mm, I don't think it's particularly healthy because it assumes you have no direct control over your life. That somehow you're forever at the mercy of something out there planning your life for you. And, you know, for so many reasons, that is undesirable. OK, I'm shuffling and I'm cutting. <coughs> Excuse moi. 
and I've cut and let me pick up the first of the three card pick. And the first card is the four of cups. So <coughs> excuse me for those of you who don't know what that is. There's a little chappy sitting under a tree. He's got three cups in front of him. And then there's another one with the hand of God or someone, you know, uh, bringing, you know, bringing something just to his line of vision. But he doesn't see it. And I'm not sure that he sees the other three cups there either. I take this to mean that mankind is not seeing the obvious. It's not really seeing what it's being presented with. And if you apply that to today's world, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? After all, we're having to point out the obvious over and over again. Um, and, you know, it's only now that the disclosure button has been pressed that people are beginning to realize that conspiracy theorists are actually people with common sense who knew what was going on all the time. So I'm going to place that four of cups there. And I'm going to pick another card. And this one is the five of swords. Now, the five of swords is uh, three blokes on the beach. And uh, one of them is holding some swords and two. <coughs> I do beg your pardon. Two of them are walking away, having thrown their swords down. And the guy who's still holding the swords has this sort of na 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 na, you know, kind of expression on him. And what I take this to mean is that's the cabal all smug. Thinking they've won the game. But the rest of America is growing in awareness and they've thrown down their swords and they've turned their back on what is essentially the cabal made matrix and they're going off for a swim. And when they come back, they're going to rebuild the matrix on their own terms. And now I'm going to pick another card and woohoo, this one is the tower. So you can call that the Tower of Babel or Babel if you want. But it's basically a long black tower and it's on fire and people are jumping out of it. Well, do I really have to explain that to you? <laughs> that is exactly where we're at today. The whole house of cards is burning down and we had better jump out so that we don't get incinerated along with the bad guys. And I'm motivated to do a bonus card or two. So give me a moment just to shuffle here again. And I'm cutting again. Ooh, and two cards fell out simultaneously. Okay, let me take a look. <clears throat> what they are. One is temperance and the other one is the star. So temperance is all about balance, maintaining balance, which we do have to keep a very clear head and a stable demeanor while we go through all of this um, <clears throat> crash of civilization and the rebuilding of. And then the star is a beautiful card that represents basically. Hope. <coughs> Bright prospects. This is absolutely wonderful. A really nice little spread there for America. All right, well, I might take a picture of that. And if anybody wants a picture of that, you can uh, Write to me, let me know, and I'll send you a picture. But that's the snapshot of potential for America today. We seem to be doing very well. We're on the upside. All right. <coughs> Sincere apologies for this little gremlin in my throat, but not much I can do about it now. Okay, let's move on to one of our most popular segments, and that one is 
Plato Chips, where we quote a philosopher of note. And I thought about this, you see, a lot. And yesterday was July the 4th. So I'm feeling very independent and feeling my American citizenship in a very warm and fuzzy way. After all, I've been here a, you know, a great many years, but I didn't become a citizen until Groundhog Day this year. And this is my first Independence Day as a citizen. And it's very exciting. So today's intellectual gymnast is none other, none other than Thomas Paine. So who was Thomas Paine? And why do we care about this chap who was born in 1737 in a town called Thetford in England, um, but died in 1809 in New York here in the United States? We care about him deeply because his writings influenced the American Revolution and helped pave the way for the Declaration of Independence. So we, he was a very influential 18th century writer of essays and pamphlets, and among them, The Age of Reason, which talks about uh, the place of religion in society, and also The Rights of Man, which is a piece that defends the French Revolution, and one of my favorites of all times, Common Sense, which was published during the American Revolution. Um, why do I like Common Sense? Well, I like it because I'm very into Common Sense, but I think it's his most influential piece because he brought his ideas to a very vast audience. I don't know that the common or garden colonial really had an idea of the extent of British uh, colonial tyranny, but because of Thomas Paine, he, they do, they did. They were aware, they were made aware. Rather like today, we're going around saying, don't take the jab, don't listen to the World Health Organization. These are all bad things. Don't give up your sovereignty for safety. I feel that Thomas Paine did that in the early days of the revolution for the American people, not necessarily for the, for the group of elites that um, you know formed the first American government. So I think I said he was born in England, in Thetford in 1737. Uh, his father was a Quaker, his mother was an Anglican, O'Joy, and Thomas, the Little Payne, I wonder if his parents called him Little Payne, um, his parents gave him very little formal education, but he did have the basics down, reading, uh, writing, and arithmetic. At 13 years old, he started working with his father as a stay maker, and stays are those thick ropes that are used on uh, sailing ships. Thetford was actually a shipbuilding town back in the day. Um, there were some rumours uh, circulated after his death that he was a corset maker, um, which he was not. But I think that's an example of slander spread by his enemies. Um, he later on worked as many different things. He worked as an officer of the excise. Uh, he was hunting smugglers and collecting liquor and tobacco taxes. Naughty little pain. Um, but he was terrible at this job. And actually, he was terrible at all of his jobs. And it has been said that his life in England was, in fact, marked by repeated failures. And to compound all of these little hardships of his, uh, around 1760, his wife and child both died during the birthing process. And then his business, you know, the one of making the ropes, it went under. Um, so the summer of 1772, we see him publishing The Case of the Officers of Excise. 
For some reason, he published a 21-page article in defense of higher pay for excise officers. But it was his first political work, so we note it. And he spent that winter in London, actually handing out 4,000 copies of the article to members of parliament and other citizens. Um, you know, I don't think it really went down well with the establishment. Um, I, you know, I think he lost that job. But luckily for him, he met one of America's most eccentric sons. And that would be, of course, one Benjamin Franklin. And Ben said to him, look, man, move to America and I will provide you with a letter of introduction and you can take all of your independent thought forms there and do something good for a nation that wants to escape tyranny. So Payne arrives in Philadelphia in November of 1774 and he goes, I don't have any money, I need a job. So he gets a job editing, helping to edit the Pennsylvania magazine. So by that time, where are we? January 75. Now he's in the mood to begin writing in earnest, and he publishes many articles, mostly anonymously, some under pseudonyms. Um, one of his earlier articles was a scathing condemnation of the African enslaved people trade, and he called it African Slavery in America, sensible title. Uh, he signed it under the name Justice and Humanity. So at this time, he's getting his propagandist ideas together. And of course, he couldn't have arrived at America in a better time where everybody was talking about revolution and injustice and, and the conflict between the colonists and England uh, while it was beginning to reach somewhat of a fever pitch. So uh, after all, where are we? Sort of April 75, that was after the battles of Lexington and Concord. Um, you know, the first military engagements of the American Revolutionary War. Um, Payne said, look, America, don't simply revolt against taxation, but demand independence from Great Britain entirely. And then he expanded on this idea in that 50-page pamphlet called Common Sense, um, which I suggest you all read. And it was printed January the 10th, 1776. And it was worded in such a way, um, how can I put it? Um, you know, he could have, he, he was actually a very good writer, but he decided with this book that he was going to do it in an unadorned style. And he wasn't going to show his education off or his knowledge of Latin or any of that. But he would use biblical references and he would use references that would speak to the common man because he really wanted the colonists, the average uh, common or garden variety colonists, to understand um, what a grave situation they were in and that they needed to be liberated from it. In fact, common sense is, um, well, it's accepted by historians as one of the most incendiary and popular pamphlets of the entire revolutionary era. So isn't that wonderful? Um, you know, he did a great deal of good for the early American Revolution, but nobody really acknowledged it till much later. Think of this. Back in the day, you know, um, 18th century, 1776, yes, right? He, think of the population. We didn't have a population explosion at that time. But within a few months of writing Common Sense, 
he sold half a million copies. I mean, it is, that is amazing. I, I think it's unheard of. And it really, I think it's the only single publication that had such an impact in paving the way for the Declaration of Independence, um, which, as we all know, was unanimously ratified on July the 4th, 1776. And he did serve in the war. Now, he wasn't much of a soldier, so, you know, giving him a rifle and all was a bit of a waste of time. And with some people, the pen is mightier than the musket. But he did serve as a volunteer, and he was the personal assistant to General Nathaniel Green. And he traveled with the Continental Army. And again, you know, he wasn't a natural soldier, but he wrote these what they called crisis papers. And they appeared between 1776 and 1783. He wrote about 16 of them. And the purpose of these um, was to, was to, I suppose, really boost the morale of the colonial soldiers. Because at that time, George Washington's troops were being decimated. You know, everyone thinks, oh, we had the revolution and everything was fine after that. It really didn't happen that way. It was a long, hard slog. Some of our founding fathers and framers lost everything, including their lives. And there wasn't any money. You know, anyone who thinks that the, you know, the Americans declared independence and suddenly had money for everything, um, that's not how it was. Everything was, was, was funded um, privately. So he, he really did his bit to boost the morale of your American soldiers who were just hunters, really, and just average Joes bringing their muskets along to take on the greatest army, the greatest standing army of the day. He, he did well. By 1777, Congress named him Secretary to the Committee of Foreign Affairs. But things didn't go very well for him, and I'll tell you why, okay? He uncovered some scandal. It, some papers came into his possession, some intel came into his possession, and he heard that a member of the Continental Congress was profiting personally from French aid given to the United States. And being the straight-laced chappy he was, he thought, I'm going to reveal this scandal. Um, it didn't go well for him. And he also had intel that alluded to secret negotiations with France, um, which were deemed not fit for public consumption. In other words, all of the shenanigans that go on behind government dealings. Uh, this honesty of his did not go well for him, and it led to his expulsion from that committee um, of foreign affairs. So by 1779, he was out of that. But he found another job as a clerk to the General Assembly of Pennsylvania. And he realized very quickly how disgruntled the American troops still were. So he went to find out why. And he found out it's because they didn't get paid or they were paid very little and the supplies were scarce. So he started a drive both um, you know, here in America and in France, to raise what was needed in wartime supplies. And this effort of his, 
it was very important to the final success of the revolution. And meanwhile, he's gaining a great deal of experience about how politics works, how finances works, also how corruption works. Um, and 1780, he wrote Public Good, another one of his pamphlets, which called for a national convention to replace the Articles of Confederation um, with a stronger government under a continental constitution. The Articles of Confederation really weren't strong enough um, for a new nation. By April 1787, we see him heading back to England. Um, and he became fascinated with all of the uh, goings on with the French Revolution. And of course, he immediately, passionately supported the revolution. Then Edmund Burke, you know Edmund Burke, 1790, he attacks the actual premise of the French Revolution. And this really pissed off Mr. Paine. So he shot back by writing The Rights of Man in 1791. It was a scathing response. Um, it, it really sort of put him on the map, as it were. Uh, I'll tell you why. <laughs> the British government banned the book and Payne was indicted for treason. But clever little Payne, he was already on his way to France when the decree went out and so he avoided prosecution. Uh, later on, somewhere down the line, I don't remember when, he was named an honorary citizen of France. So he's there and he's rallying, he's in French, allons enfants de la patrie and all that, and he's rallying for the revolution. And the people want to do away completely with Louis XVI. But Payne says, why kill him? Just banish him. Hmm, that was very unpopular because when the radicals under that absolute nut job called Robespierre took over, he sent Payne to prison. And he was in prison for almost a year from uh, Christmas 1793 to November 1794. And he narrowly escaped execution. What is it with all revolutionaries when they take over from the bad guys? More often than not, they become worse than the people that they replaced. And my golly, the French were very guillotine happy in those days. Uh, I, I think they're thinking about doing that again. Uh, today. And I would support that, actually, because uh, Macron is an ass and he needs to be done away with. Anyway, moving on. 1794, Payne was imprisoned, but it's OK because he survived. And the first part of his Age of Reason um, was published. That particular book, which is I have a fondness for, it criticizes institutionalized religion and uh, corruption and political ambition and it it, oh, it challenges the validity of the bible oh my god people so the book was controversial as was everything Payne wrote and again as i said the british government prosecuted anyone who tried to publish or distribute it but anyway he eventually was released from prison Payne stayed in france he released the second and third parts of the age of reason and who would have, he was invited back to America and the president at that time would have been Thomas Jefferson. So a few other little things about Payne that are very little known. Um, he was an accomplished inventor. And some of the devices uh, he developed didn't go beyond the planning stage. But uh, here's a few of the interesting ones. He developed a crane for lifting heavy objects, always useful. 
a smokeless candle, and he toyed with the idea of using gunpowder as a method for generating power. What could possibly go wrong, I say? Uh, he was also a bit of an engineer. He was fascinated with bridges, and he had made several attempts to, to build bridges in both America and England after the Revolutionary War. Perhaps his most impressive engineering achievement um, was across the Weir River in England. Um, it's called the Sunderland Bridge. Uh, his goal was to build a single span bridge with no piers. So in 1796, this 240 foot span bridge was completed and it was only the second iron bridge ever built. And at the time it was the largest in the world and it was renovated in 1857 and remained intact until 1927 when it was replaced. I wonder how many people know that about Thomas Paine. Anyway, he returned to the United States in 1802 or was it 1803? Who knows? Someone knows, but clearly, apparently I don't. Um, only to find that rather than be glorified for his revolutionary work, he was remembered actually as a bit of a rabble rouser and someone who stuck his nose in where it shouldn't be. And it was more than a century later before his reputation would be reinstated and he would be honored for his contribution to the American Revolution. He died alone, <clears throat> June the 8th, 1809. And there were only six mourners present at his funeral and half of them were people who were formerly enslaved. Um, the New York citizen printed this following line in his obituary. He had lived long, did some good and much harm. You know, when you expose corruption, people are really going to have it in for you, you know. So for more than a century following his death, um, that was his legacy. But finally, January 1937, the Times of London finally spoke well of him, referred to him as the English Voltaire. And he was then, from then on, regarded as a seminal figure of the American Revolution. Thomas Paine, ladies and gentlemen, if you are interested in American history, especially early American history, uh, you need to look him up. Um, lovely style of writing, and I like that he's concise and he can write to any specific audience. So go for it, Thomas Paine, and thank you, Thomas, for your contribution to the American Revolution. All right, what shall we do next? <laughs> Let me play my kazoo. Let's do the wizard's gizzard, a spiritual ritual that we can make habitual. And today's whiz giz is titled, To Mine Own Self, I Must Be True. Darlings, let me have a little sip of this drinky poo and see if I can calm some of these little frogs in my throat. <clears throat> no reference to the French Revolution there. Ha ha ha. Okay, here's the thing. If we can't be honest with ourselves, how can we be honest with others or expect honesty from others? We need to learn to process our emotions and make corrections as we seek daily to refine our personalities until they effort, effortlessly 
merge with our higher selves. You know, this illusionary separation from our glory and source honestly is the only correction we need to make. But we're multi-layered beings, so I think we have to approach it from many angles. The easiest thing we can do, make peace with the day before we go to bed. That's it. Make peace with it. Don't go to bed angry. Don't go to bed in a strange mood. Don't go to bed having consumed 25 cheese sandwiches because you're going to have bad dreams. Remind yourself that self-actualization, self-realization is the goal of any incarnation. You know, when heaven and earth meet, the need for separate realms is no more. So why do we hide for ourselves? We don't want to die and go to heaven and have earth meet heaven. We want to bring heaven and earth together here. It's a very simple little thing. And we really need to take better care of our minds, don't we? Everything physical that we create is a side effect of the thought process. You can go back to the Big Bang and remember that it was eons and eons and eons of uh, what we call archangel and angel activity before anything physical happened. That's something to think about. All right. What else shall we do today? Um, I thought about giving you a crazy little silly poem of mine, but I thought, no, why terrorize my my listeners um, on such an auspicious day? So I wanted to find something with more of an American theme, an early American theme. And I found a little something that I used to really enjoy reading back in the day. Um, it's called a political litany which is a veritable rant against the machinery of the British crown. Um, and it is written by one Monsieur Philippe Freneau, who lived from 1752 and died in 1832. And he starts out, Liberanos Domine, deliver us, O Lord, not only from British dependence, but also from a junto that labor with absolute power whose schemes disappointed have made them look sour, from the lords of the council who fight against freedom, who still follow on where the devil shall lead them, from the group at St. James who slight our petitions and fools that are waiting for further submissions, from a nation whose manners are rough and abrupt, from scoundrels and rascals whom gold can corrupt from pirates sent out by command of the king to murder and plunder, but never to swing, from Wallace and Greaves and Vipers and Roses, to whom, if heaven pleases, will give bloody noses, from the valiant Dunmore with his crew of banditti, who plunder Virginians at Williamsburg City, from hot-headed Montague, mighty to swear, the little fat man with his pretty white hair. From bishops in Britain who butchers are grown, from slaves that would die for a smile from the throne, from assemblies that vote against Congress proceedings, who now see the fruit of their stupid misleadings? From Tyron the mighty who flies from our city and swelled with importance disdains the committee, but since he is pleased to proclaim us his foes, what the devil care we 
where the devil he goes. And that scoundrel, Lord North, who would bind us in chains from a dunce of a king who was born without brains, the utmost extent of whose sense is to see that reigning and making of buttons agree. From an island that bullies and hectors and swears, we send up to heaven our wishes and prayers that we, disunited, may free men be still and Britain go on to be damned if she will. Ooh, baby. Yes, indeed. Philip Frenot, he was a Huguenot. He spent much of his life in Matawan in New Jersey, and he attended Princeton, and he formed a very good friendship with James Madison. He was captured by the British during the Revolutionary War. He was interned in a British in a in a British prison hulk. Um, it's a prison ship. The conditions were awful, and he he chronicled that experience. After the revolution, he served with Jefferson in the State Department, and he founded the National Gazette. Um, but because of his sharp criticism of Alexander Hamilton and some of the other Federalist leaders, uh, Frenot was repeatedly threatened with prosecution by the Federalists, who sought to silence him. Um, and a political litany um, well, it's a very good example of his sharp tone that goes through most of his political writings. Um, and they did advance the revolutionary cause. Um, and later, uh, the views of um, Jeffersonian democracy, I suppose, is, 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 is the phrase. So there we are, a little bit of a political ranting from Mr. Freneau. And what's next? Oh, let's see. What does the kazoo say? <laughs> I think we should do a little cryptic mystic. Yes, let's have a little change of pace here. The cryptic mystic, my darlings, is uh, where we have our way with someone dead who liked to pray. And today's holy roller is Tukaram. If you haven't heard of him, Tukaram, 1608 to 1649, not a long life. Born in a village, um, I think it was Dehu in... Uh, Maharashtra, India. That's right, Maharashtra in India. And he was one of the saints of the Bhakti movement. Um, they composed basically devotional poetry called uh, Abhangas. So um, you know about Kirtans, I think, the spiritual songs. They're, you know, songs of uh, devotion to um, Hindu god Vishnu or one of his avatars. So this chapter, Karam, was born as the second of three brothers in this village. His family owned a money lending business and a retailing business and also engaged in trade and agriculture. Although they were from a lower Sudra class, um, his family was of good standing and commanded much respect in the village. As a young man, Takaram lost both his parents and these tragedies of his personal life continued. Um, his wife, his first wife and son also died. And although Takara married for the second time, um, he was losing his love for all things physical, for the worldly pleasures. And he was definitely on his way to becoming some sort of guru, I suppose, and renouncing everything. Um, I think there's a story that after, you know, when he married his second wife, uh, he ran away to the forest for 15 days to align with his higher self. But the wife found him. <laughs> as wives will do, and brought him back. 
but he was a changed man. He didn't want to do the daily grind anymore. He just wanted to spend his time in devotional worship and composing kirtans and, and poetry. He was killed, murdered in 1649 by Brahmin priests. Uh, he was only 41 years old, killed, murdered by the priests. Why? Because they resented him for wanting the common people to have a better understanding of and access to devotional music. What is it with these priestly classes? They always want to be in the middle. They always want to translate the word of God for you. God forbid that somebody gets out there and says, oh, let's have a Bible in English or let's write some songs that the common agricultural worker can relate to. In comes the Illuminati of whatever religion of whatever country and says, oh, no, no, you can't do that. And by the way, we'll kill you. Such a shame. Anyway, moving on. Many miracles are attributed to Takaram. And quite often, I've heard him compare to St. Francis of Assisi because he did love animals so much. It is said that birds would sit on his shoulders while he sang his songs. And Takaram believed that songs should have only one purpose, and that is to praise the Almighty. And why not? What a wonderful reason for writing a song. After all, the Almighty is the allness to our perceived smallness. To praise God is to honor the greatest part of ourselves. And I think Takaram understood that there needed to be a shift in consciousness from thinking of God as something outside of ourselves to the greater part of ourselves. It sounds very subtle, that, but that's the shift that will take us from upper third into a higher density into a higher fourth dimensional mindset, not worshiping God, but actually embodying God. What a wonderful day that will be. I doubt I will see that in physical form, but I'll be happy to watch it from the other side. Anyway, there we go. Um, I'm going to read one of my favorite little ones for you. It's called Landlocked in Fur. And it's a, I got it from a translation by Daniel Ladinsky. So here we go. Landlocked in fur by Takaram. You're going to enjoy this. I was meditating with my cat the other day and all of a sudden she shouted, eh, what happened? What happened? I knew exactly what she meant, but encouraged her to say more, feeling that if she got it all out on the table, she would sleep better that night. So I responded, tell me more, dear. And she soulfully meowed. Well, I was mingled with the sky. I was comets whizzing here and there. I was the sun in heat. Hell, I was galaxies. But now look, I'm landlocked in fur. To this I said, I know exactly what you mean. What does one say about conversations between mystics? I love that one. Um, he had quite a sense of humor, Takaram, and that, that's really one of my favorite. Um, well, actually, if I was to say what is my absolute favorite Takaram, it would be this very, very short one. It's called The Everything Poem. And here it is. 
I'm looking for a poem that says everything, so I don't have to write anymore. Ta-da! That's it! <laughs> Short and sweet. All right, my darlings, let me take a sip of my drinky poo here. Ooh, here we go. What shall we move on to next? I know what. Let's take at least one question from the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. After all, questions, answers and comments is the meat of our show. And I do promise we will go back to multiple questions on the next show. So if you would like to share your wisdom or your mental incapacity with martini heads across the globe and beyond, send your emails to me, arnie at arnieavidician.com or via snail mail to Cosmic Arnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, USA. And let me know if and how you wish to be identified, or I shall be forced to refer to you as omit personal details. Okay, let's shake up the fishbowl. <gasps> shaky, 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 shaky. And this is from Trent of uh, no location given. And Trent says, Dear Annie, it seems you have led an interesting and unusual life. Mm, maybe. I have two questions for you. What is your favorite cocktail if you are only allowed one type? And, um, and also, do you have any lifetime regrets? Okay. I'd say those are good questions. Let me have a think about that while I wipe the sweat from my brow. Very warm day here in Oregon. I think it's approaching 100. Cocktails. Okay, now I know a thing or two about cocktails. I, I do. I have experienced many in my lifetime, probably too many. But Trent, I don't have one favorite cocktail. I mean, it depends, depend, you know, the variance of the season, you know, and location. Uh, I'm more likely to imbibe bourbon based cocktails in the cooler months. And I enjoy the lighter spritzer type cocktails and sort of light lager type beers in the warmer months. And to be honest, Trent, the thought of being confined to just one cocktail for eternity Oh, I mean, it's the same as being confined to one food group for eternity, isn't it? It makes me sad. Variety is the spice of life. And these days, for so many reasons, I'm such a light drinker. So experimenting with new recipes, savoring the metaphysical mixology, you know, that's what it's all about for me these days. Absolute selective quality and not quantity. I don't have a favorite. I'm so sorry, but I would be lying. I would just be making it up. As for regrets, well, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Um, I make a point of processing my emotions as I experience them rather than having regrets. You know, I have a past. I have made peace with it. There are things I have done I wish I had not done, but I did them, and now I've had to make peace with them. If I had known better, I would have done better. And I could give you quite a long list of those, but, but why? I mean, they no longer trigger me, so they're no longer active in my energy field. 
And I've worked hard to carry no grievance from the past so that I'm always in my power of now mode. You know, I review my life and I make corrections where necessary, and many corrections have been necessary for me in my life. And I smile and I keep calm and I carry on and I engage in self-honesty. Wherever we find ourselves in any given moment is the result of our thoughts, our reactions and our actions. The best we can do is never play the victim in any situation. Stand in the glory of our divine nature, engage in self-honesty and walk the path to self-realization, to be a pool of illumination, to accept and embrace the Christed light spark within us and make it available to others. We can't make it available to others if we have not sorted out what that means. Um, you know, in our own lives, can we? Life, my darlings, is not as complicated as some would have us think. But we came here to grow, not to cower and shrink. And if you find yourself wallowing in remorse, say to yourself, that's the ego. That's not source. Thank you, Trent. Um, and I will be back to questions, answers and comments on our next show. But, you know, we have a few minutes left, so why don't we lighten the load a little bit here and let's go to weird and wacky tidbits from the anus of history. <laughs> so I picked a few here. Um, some of you guys are just wonderful at sending me these. You send me all these wild and crazy little historical things. I enjoy them. Please don't stop sending them because I really enjoy them. So I've picked out uh, a couple of dozen, I guess, or whatever. I mean, I can't count. So here we are. Um, we'll start with Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, Napoleon, Mr. Boney, he was once attacked by a horde of bunnies. Yes, this is true. He had requested that a rabbit hunt be arranged for himself and his men. And when the rabbits were released from their cages, the bunnies charged, charged towards Bonaparte and his men in what was called an unstoppable onslaught. And probably this is where Monty Python got the idea for the killer bunny. What else? During World War II, a great Dane, and I don't mean a Danish person, I mean the dog, woof woof, named Juliana, was awarded the Blue Cross Medal. Why? because she extinguished an incendiary bomb by peeing on it. Well done, give that dog a treat. And what else? We've got some American stuff here. Yes. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame? Well, he was six foot four, and he only had apparently one loss among his 300 contests. And he earned a reputation for this in New Salem, Illinois, as an elite fighter. And what about George Washington? What do we know about him? Well, many things. But what do people do when they retire from presidency? Well, George Washington did the right thing. He opened a whiskey distillery. Yes, indeed. Um, by 1799, we are told that Washington's distillery was the largest in the country, producing 11,000 gallons of unaged whiskey. Oh, huzzah for that man. Well done. More about American presidents um, and their weird and wacky ways. President Zachary Taylor. Oh, this is sad. 
he died from a cherry overdose. And don't snicker, I mean the fruit. So Zachary Taylor passed away after eating too many cherries and drinking milk at a 4th of July party in 1850. He died on July 9th from gastroenteritis. They think the acid in the cherries, along with the milk, um, caused it, and he never recovered. Moderation in all things, darling, including cherries and milk. Andrew Jackson, colourful character, had a pet parrot, and he taught his parrot, whose name was Polly, to curse like a sailor. Um, there's even a legend that the parrot had to be taken out of Jackson's funeral because of the profanity. Um, I hope that's true. That would, sound, that would be very Andrew Jackson-ish, I think. Oh, here's a cocktail one. I'm sure we're all fond of the Bloody Mary. It's a lovely little cocktail. Um, I don't recommend drinking it for brunch because you'll be asleep for the rest of the day. But it's a lovely all-round cocktail. But it wasn't always called the Bloody Mary. It was called a bucket of blood which is not appetizing and people caught on to that so then they called it the red snapper which is a bit fishy really nobody wants a fishy drink and finally we settled on bloody mary and uh, it has been the most popular brunch cocktail hands down it's even outsells the mimosa um and I can't think of having a mimosa right now because I was celebrating July the 4th with my friend Suzanne Ward and her um, her eldest son, Eric, and his uh, beautiful girlfriend, uh, Letty, the other day. And I don't know what happened, but the champagne did not stop flowing. And um, I'm feeling a little odd today. So I hope you appreciate that I'm following up all of that champagne with this cocktail just for you, my people. OK, what else do we have? Oh, this is so silly. 1386. A pig was executed in France. Why would you execute a pig? Did it not give you its bacon? No, apparently what happened is it attacked a child and the child died later from their wounds. It will happen. So you yeah, put the pig down and turn it into a bacon sandwich. But no, they arrested it, put it in prison, sent it to court. It stood trial for murder. It was found guilty and then it was executed by hanging. Uh, you know, sometimes I despair. For the human race i really do um what else what else oh this is oh this is one of my favorites this is the second world war okay so russia or i should say the soviet union but it was probably mainly the russians ran out of vodka celebrating the end of world war ii so when that long war ended everybody had a street party all over the soviet union and it lasted for days until all of the nation's vodka reserves ran out um when did they run out 22 hours after the partying started you gotta hand it to the russians they do they do love a bit of vodka don't they mm. oh here's one and this is all from all of my red-headed friends in ancient greece they believed redheads became vampires after death and this was partly because red-headed people are very pale-skinned, aren't they, and sensitive to sunlight, unlike the swarthy Mediterranean Greeks who had olive skin and dark features. And there could be some truth to that, you know, gingers. Maybe they do become vampires after death. How do we know? How would we know? Hmm, okay. What else? Oh, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, one of my favorite characters. It, eccentric and strange dude he was my kind of man 
1,200 bones from some 10 human bodies were found in the basement of Ben Franklin's house. What does that mean? Was he a serial killer? Mm, we think it was used in the study of human anatomy. He was weird because most geniuses do have a spark of weird in them, but I don't think he was a serial killer. What else? Uh, oh, this one's fun. The tallest married couple ever recorded was one Hannah Haining Swan, who was seven foot 11, and Martin Van Buren Bates, who was seven foot nine. And they got married and they did the dingy wingy together. And when Anna gave birth, the baby was 22 pounds. That's the size of a dog. A, 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 that's amazing. I, I, my bits hurt just, um, just thinking about that. And I think we'll just take one more here as we're coming up to our, let me pick a really nice one. Oh, this is one of my favorite ones. Because um, I had mentioned a while ago on one of my podcasts, I don't remember which one, that uh, back in the day when I worked for some very strange people, I was asked to witness uh, physical torture. Um, uh, it was very unpleasant. I have a notoriously weak stomach. Um, so this is actually one of my favorite tidbits. So the master interrogator for the Luftwaffe was one Hans Schaff, and his tactic was to be nice to people. Um, and in order to get information out of prisoners, he would uh, take them for nature walks without the guards being present. And he would bring them homemade food and crack jokes and drink beers and have afternoon tea with German ace fighters. Um, you know, when you hurt people, they'll tell you anything that you want to hear. Um, this was so much more successful. So successful, in fact, that the US military later incorporated his methods into their own interrogation schools. Fascinating stuff all of it. But we're coming to the end of the show, my darlings. I think I'm going to have to wrap it up. Thank you for being part of my 100th Metaphysical Martini podcast. First one was July the 10th, 2019. It seems a lifetime ago, but it also seems that it was yesterday. Thank you to Nancy Hopkins of Cosmic Reality Radio for giving me the opportunity to share my brilliance and my bullshit with the world every other Wednesday. And I appreciate your wisdom and your guidance over the years, Nancy, more than I can say. And a heartfelt thank you to all the martini heads for your support. Today's real life cocktail was called a last word, a pre-prohibition classic, and you make it with equal parts of gin, green chartreuse, maraschino liqueur, and a lime juice. Put everything in a shaker with cracked ice, shaky, shaky, wakey, wakey, and then pour it into your favorite cocktail glass. Garnish it with whatever the heck you want. I'd go with a lime wedge or perhaps a fresh cherry, but not as many as, you know, Zachary had that day. Um, delightful cocktail from the 1920s. Now remember folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink, which is not what I had last night, one drink, is all you need. I am Ani, mad as the day is long, Abadician. This was a metaphysical martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. <makes noise> Darlings, until we meet again, refuse to be silent in the face of adversity and tyranny. Do not comply with illegal and immoral mandates. Get involved in local government. Become a well-trained and responsible gun owner. Dedicate yourselves to making America great again. But above all, above all, above all, let the spirit 
inhabit the human. You have been listening to the metaphysical martini with Ani Alpatisian, the mad shaman, the production of cosmicreality.com.